I don't know about you, congregation, but when you sing a song like that, it gets to my inner core. And uh, I watched thousands of people around North American arenas yesterday celebrating and showing how marvelous and how wonderful they think their teams are to them. And I think before we go to the sermon today, it's only appropriate if you think your Savior's love for you is marvelous, and if you think it is wonderful, that I would encourage you just to take a few minutes right now, and can we rise and thank Him for how amazing and how wonderful His love is. Father, we thank you for helping us to catch our attention this morning. Lord, last night as we watched TV, there's thousands of people who are placing their trust, their joy in a team. Oh God, help us as we look at your word this morning to make sure that we, your people, celebrate you, the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we lead into this Easter week that you would help us to have that song on our lips all week. I pray that it will be sounding out on the streets where we live, in our neighborhoods, the places where we work, the places where we go to school. I pray that we would be busy, as Pastor Rick challenged us this morning, we would be busy about getting the news out. How marvelous, how wonderful is the Savior's love. So help us this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just needed to clap because there wasn't much clapping I could do last night while I watched the game. So... We needed to celebrate a little bit. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, or perhaps you've been away, over the last four weeks we've been looking to the scriptures to remind ourselves of essential truths that disciples of Jesus Christ believe. Truths about the nature of God, truths about what it means to be made in His image, the truth about our sinfulness, and then last week we were reminded about the truth of His marvelous grace, which we have just sung about, His love, His grace. And so this morning we will take a look at the next discipleship essential in our series, but I want you to hear me out. Everything we believe, trust in, and hope for hinges on this discipleship truth that we are going to look at this morning. You see, it is the discipleship essential that made the way possible for God's grace, His marvelous grace, to intersect with our sinfulness and for His grace to be applied to our lives. Without this truth, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Without this truth, our brothers and sisters who have passed away in Christ are lost. Without this truth, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. You might be thinking, wow, Pastor Calvin, that's pretty strong statements you're making. Yes, it is, because that's the Scriptures. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul told his brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth about this essential truth that we are going to look at together this morning. You see, Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth, and he planted a church. And he was discipling those over that 18 months who believed in the message that he was preaching. 
After 18 months, he moved on. And three years later, while establishing another center for missionary work in Ephesus, Paul received news that internal conflict within his congregation at Corinth and compromise were infiltrating the congregation back in Corinth. Now, to give us an idea of the context of the types of things that were going on in the church and the congregation back in Corinth, I want you to imagine with me being the Connections pastor at that church or a church similar to the one in Corinth that Paul had received news of. Part of my role here at the church is integration. Part of my role is to meet new people and welcome them and get them connected so that they can grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. So I want you to imagine with me, so you can understand the context, what the conversation might have been like in the lobby at the church in Corinth at the time Paul was writing this letter. Perhaps a conversation with a guest may have sounded like this. Welcome. Is this your first time at First Baptist Church of Corinth? It is great to have you with us, and I trust that you will feel right at home. Here at First Baptist Corinth, you'll find that we actually only value speakers with really good communication skills. And you will find our congregation will competitively evaluate our missionaries and our pastors. Please, we want you to join in. Feel right at home. Don't be alarmed if you come across sexual immoral behavior. And as I tell all first-time guests, just be friendly to everyone and avoid a lawsuit. Did I tell you we are so glad you are here, and we're looking forward to help you get connected and become a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. Oh, did I mention that there is a thought permeating through our congregation regarding whether we really actually believe in the resurrection of the dead? And brother, based on your outfit, I recommend you sit near the back of the church so as to not draw any unnecessary attention to yourself or distract the true worshipers of God. Welcome, and we trust you'll enjoy your experience with us this morning. Perhaps that's what the conversation would have gone like in terms of all the things that were going on because of internal conflict and compromise in the church in Corinth. Now, joking aside, we should not ignore how quickly a congregation can stray from living out the discipleship essentials to even beginning to question the fundamental truths of our faith when internal conflict and compromise are accommodated. It was only three years since Paul had established this church and left them. So Paul responds to this disheartening news he received about what was going on in his previous congregation, and he decides to write them a letter, known better to us as 1 Corinthians. Now, in sports, when a team is beginning to go on a downward spiral, you'll often hear coaches or commentators say, they just need to get back to playing the fundamentals. They need to get back to the basics. Well, I believe similarly when things start to trend downwards as they were in this congregation, for whatever reason, it is always a good practice to get people focused back on the fundamentals. That's why we're doing this series this year, Discipleship Essentials. And this is exactly what Paul does through his letter. He reminds them of a number of discipleship essentials. 
culminating with the key truth that we are going to look at together this morning. Redemption. Redemption. God's plan for reconciling the severed relationship between himself and humanity. And I want you to listen to this real carefully. As was the case in the Corinthian church, the degree to which we believe by faith and hold firmly to this essential of God's plan of redemption will significantly affect how we live out our mission both as individual ministers of reconciliation and as a community of believers known as Calvary Baptist Church. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? We're there together. We will go through the first 11 verses. And what I want to highlight this morning is three aspects of the gospel that we must never neglect to remind each other of, that we must never neglect to remember. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. May God bless his word to us this morning. Three aspects of the gospel we must all never neglect to remind each other of. Firstly, the gift of the gospel. The gift of the gospel. Paul starts this chapter by saying, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. You see, God in his sovereign love and by his grace had orchestrated for Paul to go to Corinth and to give the people there the gift of hearing the gospel. If you stop and think about it, would you not agree that the opportunity you and I have had to hear the good news is indeed a gift from God? Maybe because we don't stop and think about it enough, we have forgotten that. The gift of the gospel. I'm afraid that because of the privilege we have in the West to be able to hear the gospel, computers, TV, our phones, we get to worship safely together in church. Through so many different means, we have the privilege of hearing the gospel that perhaps we have become guilty of not fully appreciating and thanking God for his grace that he has given to us to hear the good news the gospel. 
As one speaker said, I recently heard, hearing his redemptive plan has become so familiar to us that perhaps it no longer impresses us. It has become so familiar to us that it no longer impresses us the gift of the gospel. You might be asking, well, how significant is it that we have been blessed with the gift of hearing the gospel? Well, without hearing the gift of the gospel, we will not have saving faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15 and verse 17 says this, listen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Jesus. That's why Paul starts by saying, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, of the gift that you heard. And he goes on to say to them, which you received. Again, affirming that the gospel is a gift. It's not earned. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. Therefore, we receive it. And on which you have taken your stand, Paul says to them. You see, Paul does commend those who were sticking to the essentials of the gospel they received, even in the midst of internal conflict and compromise going on around them. But then he says, by this gospel, you are saved. By this gospel, you are saved. That's why I want to remind you about what you heard. Saved, rescued from God's wrath, his just punishment for our sins, rescued from spending eternity separated from the presence of God. By this gospel, the gift that you received through my preaching, by it you are saved. Paul has reminded them that the fundamental message of the gift of the gospel, which we will again say over and over next week and next weekend, it is what Paul preached is it is a message of salvation, deliverance from God's condemnation for our sins. But do you notice what he said? By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. So is Paul somehow saying here that our personal effort will somehow guarantee our salvation and maintains our position as a child of God? Absolutely not. Rather, he is clarifying for his brothers and sisters that remaining faithful to the gospel, both in word and in deed, by not compromising, will be the evidence of your true salvation. Failure to remain faithful to the gift of the gospel that was preached to them in word and deed, as some of them among them were doing. They were, he, he mentioned that you're compromising, there's internal conflict. Perhaps they did not fully understand what they had signed up for. Perhaps they did not fully understand what the gospel encompasses. It changes 
how we live our lives. Thus their belief, he says, was not genuine. They believed in vain. The gift of the gospel presented to people like you and like myself by God's grace is to be received by faith. It is what followers of Jesus Christ take they stand on. And if one has genuine faith, we will remain faithful and loyal to what we have received in the gift of the gospel. And I pray as we move forward out of the service today that we will have the attitude that David prayed in Psalms chapter 51, verse 10 and 12. Create in us a new heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Listen closely. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, the gift of the gospel. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Remind us how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And then grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. Brothers and sisters, we need to do a better job of thanking God for the gift of the gospel. And that he loved us enough to send someone to share it with us, to preach it to us. And then we need to do as Paul encouraged his disciple Timothy to do, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you because what we have is a treasure, the gift of the gospel. Secondly, though, I want us to neg never neglect to remind each other of the truth of the gospel in verses 3 through 7. Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as general knowledge. Is that what he said? No. He said, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. As of first importance. You see, Paul even himself acknowledges that he too was blessed with receiving this gift of the gospel. You might recall the dramatic way in which Paul received the gift of the gospel on the road to Damascus. You can read about that this afternoon in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20, when he got a direct revelation of the gospel from Christ himself. Wow. But do you notice what Paul did with the gift of the gospel? He re-gifted it. He re-gifted it. For what I received, he said, I passed on to you. Perhaps you have received a gift from someone and, that you really appreciated and you valued and then somehow found out that that gift actually was something that they had been given and then they re-gifted it to you. And perhaps in your mind that kind of took the value of what you received down a little bit. Well, the good news is the gift of the gospel is intended to be regifted. So let's stop holding it to ourselves. I agree with Pastor Rick. That's why. Please take these cards and re-gift the opportunity for people to hear the gospel next weekend. What's the worst thing that could happen? They say no. But what is the best thing that could happen? 
They could come here and they could receive the gift of hearing the gospel through the sermon, through the choirs, through the dramatic scenes that are going to be happening. And God, by his grace, give them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus Christ and they could have their lives transformed forever. No thank you. But what could God possibly do? Regift the opportunity for here for people to hear the gospel. That's what Paul did because he knew it is of first importance. What is of first importance? Verse 3. This is the truth of the gospel that Christ died for our sins. But then please note what he says after that according to the scriptures. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Always make sure that whatever gospel you are listening to or reading, that it is according to the scriptures. Not just something that sounds similar to the scriptures, but that it is according to the scriptures. If it is not according to the scriptures, brothers and sisters, it is false teaching. So let us go to a passage of Scripture that talks about that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Open your Bible to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. And there we will read according to the Scriptures that Christ was indeed going to die for our sins. Isaiah chapter 53 beginning in verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. That's a powerful verse. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed, spiritually healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he poured the sin of many and made intercession for the transgression. Brothers and sisters, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the truth of the gospel. Christ, through his obedient, sinless life, earned righteousness for us. 
making him the only qualified person to die on the cross in our place to earn forgiveness for our sins. You see, ultimately, it was because of both God's love and God's justice that Christ died for us. Oh, we're familiar with his love. We know verses like John 3, 16. But we must never forget equally important was the justice of God, which required that he find a way for the penalty due us for our sins to be paid. For God could not accept us into fellowship with himself unless the penalty was paid. So according to the scriptures we read in Romans chapter 3 verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus, brothers and sisters, was offered by God as the substitute to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 says God made him, referring to Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. His death on the cross satisfied God's justice and purchased mercy for us. Dying on our behalf, Jesus died the death we deserved so that we could have mercy that we don't deserve. He bore the guilt of our sins alone. God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on his son the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and the vengeance against sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. And in so doing, changed his wrath towards us into favor. That is what is so marvelous. That is what is so wonderful. Because Jesus died for our sins, God's wrath towards us has been changed to favor. And only the blood of Christ, that is his death, would be able to take away our sins. As Hebrews 9.28 says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. There was no other way for God to save us than for Christ to die in our place for our sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth of the gospel. But there's more. Verse 4, that he was buried, affirming Jesus died, physical death, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Hosea chapter 6, 2 says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence, saved. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 47, Jesus speaking to his disciples says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled according to the scriptures. He said, written in verse 44, uh, 44, sorry, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, scriptures, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand what? The scriptures. 
He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The scriptures ground these two fundamental truths of Christ's death and his resurrection in God's grand scale plan to redeem the world. And the scriptures also point to the fact that Christ fulfilled the whole plan of redemption because he was qualified and because he was willing. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news. The sinless life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we are redeemed from the guilt of our sin and are born again into new eternal life. This is the hope that we live with. This is the hope that my brother, my friend, and I shared literally two hours before he died two Sundays ago who we had a memorial service for yesterday. This is the truth of the gospel that we have to hold firmly to or our faith is useless. That is the hope we had as we prayed together and as we talked together and reminded each other that because Christ is risen from the dead, so too will we and we will live together forever in the presence of our Savior. But know what Paul adds. He doesn't just say that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, but then he says, and that he appeared. You see, to Paul, the thought that some in the congregation were doubting the truth regarding the resurrection of the dead when Christ returns, that was weighing on his mind and that was weighing on his heart. It's like, how could you be thinking this way? Look with me in chapter 15, verses, beginning in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Amen? This is the truth of the gospel. And that is why then in verses 5 to 7, understanding what they were doubting, he gives them a list of people who the risen Christ actually appeared to, affirming for them the bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He appeared to Cephas also known as Peter. He then appeared to the twelve, a term that was used for the disciples, even though Judas was no longer with them at this time. He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters, and I love what the scripture says, at the same 
time. Most of whom, while Paul was writing this letter, were still alive, meaning that the doubters in Corinth could go and ask these eyewitnesses about their encounter with the risen Lord. And appearing to this many witnesses at one time debunked the theory that the resurrection was just a hoax perpetuated by a few people, maybe even the 12. He appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. And Paul finally arrives where he's been aiming all along his own personal testimony. And at last, Paul says, he appeared to me also. What is amazing about when Christ appeared to Paul, when Paul was gifted with the gospel on the road to Damascus, was that it was not only after Jesus' resurrection, but it was also after Jesus' ascension, at least three years after all the appearances that Paul had just reminded them of that occurred during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, three years after that, he was gifted with the gospel when Jesus himself revealed it to Paul. He also appeared to me. Paul was literally the last person to see Christ. Brothers and sisters, the redemptive plan of God. This is of first importance. This is what we have to hold firmly to. This is what we have to take our stand on, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that we, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to many. How important is this? Everything we believe in, everything we trust in, everything we hope for hinges on this truth. And Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe the truth of the gospel in your heart? Have you confessed it with your mouth? If you have, then hold firmly to the truth of the gospel. For there is one God and mankind the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Celebrate the truth of the gospel. It is marvelous. It is wonderful. Because through Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, our penalty of sin has been paid for by his resurrection, his bodily resurrection from the tomb. Death has been defeated. Christ's resurrection ensures our new birth. It ensures our justification, the ability to stand right before a holy God, and it ensures that we will receive perfect, resurrected bodies as well. This is the truth of the gospel. The gift of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and finally, in verses 7 to 11, the power of the gospel. Last of all, Paul says, it also appeared to me but then he says something interesting. As to one abnormally born. What is, he, what is he talking about here? Paul was not referring to some kind of physical condition that he had, but rather to the untimely manner in which he was spiritually born. In which he, Jesus had been gone for three years. And all of a sudden he appears to Paul an eyewitness. To the risen Lord. Untimely manner 
in which he was spiritually born. He of all people was unworthy to meet Jesus that day on the Damascus road because he said in his own words, I have persecuted the church of God. You see, no other apostle persecuted the church, precipitated the execution of Christians for blasphemy, ransacked their homes and torturously dragged them back to Jerusalem in chains for sentencing like Paul, formerly known as Saul, had done. He was truly an enemy of Christ. He was truly an enemy of Christ's gospel. And as I was studying this week, I thought, how often, Lord, we look at other people and say, well, I'm thankful I wasn't that bad. I didn't torture anyone. I didn't persecute anyone, God. Wow, Paul, he was truly your enemy. No, we were all his enemy. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And even our righteous acts before we knew Jesus Christ to God were as filthy rags. He was truly an enemy of Christ and his gospel. But this is the power of the gospel. This is the good news. It reaches even the most vilest offender. This is great news. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, there's no way I could have a relationship with God. If you understood the things I've done, if you really know my past, there is no way God would accept me to be one of his children and live with him forever and be saved, rescued from, from facing eternity, separated from him. This is the good news that God wants you to hear this morning. The power of the gospel. No one is too far for the power of the gospel. Paul was the vilest offender, and yet he was graced with the gift of the gospel. Paul's life was heading in the opposite direction from where God would place him, from his life of violence against Christ and the church. I love what one author said. Christ grabbed him and brought him through the Christian birth canal to arrive full-grown not only as a believer in Christ, but as one who is called to serve Christ as an apostle. This is the gentleman who ransacked believers' homes. And now he is being not only gifted with the gospel, but now he's being called to serve the person who he was persecuting and his followers and being given the privilege as an apostle to bring the good news to the Gentiles. You see, no one was more aware of God's grace in the name of Jesus Christ than Paul was. And we see this in verse 9 and 10. Look with me. For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. I love this verse. This verse needs to be made into a fridge magnet. If you have a chalkboard at home, you need to put this on the chalkboard. This is our story. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me, Paul says, was not without effect. You see, the grace of God made available to Paul through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, redemption. Paul's life was redeemed. It was transformed. And he was able to accomplish the good works which God prepared for him in advance to do. From persecuting the church to working harder than all of them to re-gift the gospel that he had graciously received. Rather than filled with rage, he was now filled with God's grace, 
which he recognized is what made his missionary efforts effective. Look at the second part of verse 10. You might think he's proud. Oh, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. Because of the redeeming power of the gospel, Paul, the person who persecuted the church, brought the good news to countless Jews and Gentiles. He established churches in cities throughout Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and not the least of which was Corinth itself. The Corinthians were the first-hand witnesses and fortunate beneficiaries of God's considerable investment in the reclamation project of Paul's life. Who is benefiting from the reclamation project of you that God has done in your life? If you look at that list, and we don't have time this morning, not only Paul's life was changed and transformed by the power of the gospel, but James, the brother of Jesus, who at one time had serious doubts about Jesus' ministry and along with his family thought Jesus was out of his mind, seems to have become a disciple of Jesus. James becomes a leader, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, and is mentioned among the apostles. You can read about it in Acts and in Galatians. This is the power of the gospel. When it is applied by God's grace through faith in Christ's redeeming work, it reaches the vilest offenders. It transforms lives and makes us effective on mission. So in closing, I ask you, if you have received the gospel, if your life has been transformed and you are holding firmly to the truth of that gospel both in word and deed, what is it you boast in? Because the only thing we can boast in is what Paul said. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Brothers and sisters, as we head into this holy week, May we never forget the incredible redemption plan of God. The plan to reconcile us to himself. The plan that took care of the severed relationship between himself and humanity. It is a gift. It is the truth. And it is powerful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. Thank you for allowing us to see so clearly the gift, the truth, and the power of the gospel in the life of Paul. God, I pray that we truly not, wouldn't just sing on Sunday morning how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for you, but God, I pray that in word and in deed this week, how we speak and how we live will be evident that we have received the gospel. And on it, we take our stand because by it and only by it are we saved. Oh God, would you help us to be effective on mission as Paul was and help us this week to re-gift what is of first importance. And now as we close, Lord, after being reminded of your 
amazing gift to us, I pray that we will sing with grateful hearts because you are truly amazing. Marvelous, wonderful is our Savior's love for us. Amen. We know Paul did that because he re-gifted the gospel. Listen to his words at the beginning of 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. That's the redemption plan of God, His grace being poured out on us abundantly. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom we all are the worst. But for that reason, Paul says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the orchestrator of the redemptive plan, be honor and glory forever ever. Amen. If you are here this morning and you are not sure you are saved, then I would encourage you, do not leave this place this morning. God has given you this opportunity. He has gifted you with the gospel this morning so that you might receive it and come to faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I ask myself as well, Are you compromising in word or in deed the gospel that you have received? And if you are, then come. Let's pray together. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just and he will forgive us of all unrighteousness. May God help us this week in word and deed to demonstrate the gift, the truth, and the power of the gospel. May God bless you.